Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California, produced in partnership with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. I'm Michael Waldman. I'm the president of the Brennan Center, uh, and I will be moderating today's program. And I've always been thrilled to be able to be a guest at the Commonwealth Club in the past and very happy to be able to do it remotely today. Uh, The Commonwealth Club would like to thank its members, its donors, and supporters for making this and all its other programs possible. Uh, The club is grateful for their support and hope that others will follow their example to support the club during these challenging and uncertain times. And we are really lucky, all of us, to be joined today by Ari Berman, the author and journalist, a legal expert and civil rights leader, Kristen Clark, and California Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, as we talk about the importance of voting, the ramifications of this unusual election, the specter of vote suppression, and the great fight for the future of democracy that we are all part of and that's unfolding around us. Um, you know, it's it, it, 2020, obviously, in so many ways, is an extraordinary year. And we knew this election was going to be extraordinary coming into the year. Uh, we had every reason to expect that there would be record turnout. Uh, and in fact, in the last week or two, as voting has begun around the country, we've seen people by the millions surging to the polls uh, or sending in uh, vote-by-mail ballots. It's been perhaps the one of many October surprises in this election. We knew going into this year that voters were facing the longstanding issues of voter suppression, of racially motivated policies, making it harder for many to vote, of the ongoing challenges of election administration in the United States. And then uh, starting about March, we all realized that the coronavirus pandemic was bringing in an entirely new uh, and really deeply significant set of challenges, making it possible that if we didn't do something, we were not going to really be able to have an election in, in this country that was free and fair and secure and safe for voters. So the questions we're going to be asking is, have we risen to this challenge? Have we risen to the challenge of voting in 2020? Uh, Will there be a free election? Um, Who gets to vote Uh, and who doesn't get to vote? And what kinds of barriers are there and what can we do about that? Um, Let me tell you about the really tremendous folks who are going to be on this panel who can help illuminate this for us. First of all, Ari Berman is a senior reporter at Mother Jones. He has covered this issue in depth and with insight like nobody else. His books give us the ballot, which is a tremendous history of the period, especially from the Voting Rights Act to the modern voter suppression era and hurting donkeys, have given us a lot of insight into the struggle for voting rights and into what's really going on in American politics. Welcome, Ari. Kristen Clark, uh, my my, uh, colleague in so many ways, is the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. As as you know, this is the voting rights group, uh, the civil rights group founded way back when by President John F. Kennedy, uh, when he summoned the legal community to stand up for civil rights. Um, In addition to voting rights, the Lawyers Committee works on fair housing and community development economic justice and criminal justice, judicial diversity, and more. And before coming to the Lawyers Committee, she led the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund's work in voting rights and election law and was an official in New York State and much more. We're delighted to have you here, Kristen. And then uh, we have the privilege of being joined by Alex Padilla, the Secretary of State of California, who is a leader nationwide in making voting and the electoral system and our democracy accessible uh, to all Americans uh, in ways that reverberate far beyond the borders of the state. During his term, he's focused on this. He's been a leader on automatic voter registration, uh, a breakthrough reform, and on participation. And he's dedicated his career to these issues, to energy efficiency, educational accessibility, and healthcare. Uh, he was the youngest person and the first Latino 
to be elected as council president of the Los Angeles City Council. Um, he knows about breaking barriers uh, and the importance of making our democracy work, and we are very honored to have you here as well. Um, we're going to be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask the questions from all of you from the audience as well. Um, if you're watching along with us, please be part of this. Put your questions in the text chat on YouTube or in the comments on Facebook. I'm reading this because I would mix it up uh, without a doubt. And we will be getting to them later on in the program. But first, let me thank our panelists for joining us. And let me start with a question for all of you, which is uh, why or what is different about this election and what is not so different? And why don't we start with our historian, uh, with Ari Berman. Hey, Michael, thank you so much. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting this. And it's great to see uh, so many friends and people I admire, uh, at least from afar. And if we can't all be together in San Francisco, this is um, the next uh, best thing. Uh, if you hadn't noticed, Michael, we are in a pandemic. Um, some people say we are not, but we in fact are in a deadly pandemic. And we've never held a presidential election under these conditions before. And so it's put a tremendous amount of stress on election officials. It's led to a tremendous amount of confusion among voters. A lot of people are voting in different kind of ways. A lot of people are going to vote by mail who would have otherwise not have voted by mail. Um, a lot of people are going to still vote the traditional way in person, but they have questions about where is my polling place? How long will the lines be? How safe will it be to vote? And then you have, on top of all of that uncertainty and the difficulties of holding an election in the pandemic, you have the President of the United States every single day saying things that are just completely untrue about the election that millions and millions of people believe and that gets recirculated on cable news, on his favorite channel, uh, through all sorts of disinformation. Uh, so, I mean, we've had voter suppression efforts before, but we've never had the president of the United States take the lead in spreading these efforts. And then the fact that the Republican Party is litigating in nearly every major swing state to make it harder to vote, even in a pandemic, all of that makes this election really unique. And I'm heartened by the fact that so many people are voting in spite of this, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. The fact that I think 28 million people have already voted, which is incredible. Um, but this is a really, really trying time uh, to run an election and to have an election, which the Secretary and Kristen can talk about even more than I can. Thank you. Uh, Kristen, you, you are, and your colleagues are out there in the states and nationally fighting fights around this election, uh, minute by minute. From your perspective, what is different and what is not so different about 2020? Yeah, well, this is an election season like none other, for sure. Uh, we came into the year already facing um, intense levels of voter suppression across the country. Um, a lot of this attributable to the Supreme Court's devastating 2013 ruling in Shelby County versus uh, Holder, which uh, led to a number of states, many of them in the South, like North Carolina, Texas, Georgia, Florida, and others, no longer having to take the important step of getting new voting changes pre-cleared and reviewed by the federal government. So we started this year as one in which vote purges and you know shutting down polling sites and communities of color has sadly kind of been the, the law of the land in vulnerable communities uh, in our country. And so now we've got the pandemic to contend with. And you know, I, I think it's been remarkable to see how states have responded to the pandemic. Um, in the absence of any leadership at the federal government level, 50 states and D.C. have largely been left to, on their own to figure this out. How do you run an, elec an election under these extraordinarily challenging circumstances? Um, I think it's been a year that has exposed how fractured our electoral system is because the rules literally vary state by state. There is no one-size approach to uh, providing access in our country. And what that means is, depending on where you live, that really is shaping and dictating the experience that you're having right now in terms of uh, accessing the ballot. If you live in Texas, for example, it's pretty darn hard 
uh, to vote because officials have taken the very unreasonable stance that uh, vote by mail should uh, remain limited to narrow categories of people. And they've resisted at every turn, despite litigation, efforts to open up vote by mail to all. Um, Tennessee is another state where it's incredibly difficult. Uh, this is another state that limits who has access to vote by mail. And Tennessee actually takes uh, uh, the <laughs> very interesting step of criminalizing the act of distributing absentee ballot applications. So if you are a civic-minded individual who wants to, for example, make sure people you used to go to church with have access to the, to the absentee ballot application, or uh, you want to help out folks that you went to college with, these are actions that are literally a, a class A misdemeanor in the state of Tennessee that can subject you to, to prosecution. But then we've got states like California, and I'm so happy that the secretary is here uh, that have, have, you know, it has been a shining example of what you do, which is you don't preserve the status quo. You actually have to take steps that are proactive and affirmative and that recognize that we are being hit by a pandemic that has devastated uh, families and communities across our country, a pandemic that has had a disproportionate impact on people of color who are already subject to voter suppression. So it's a, it's a very... It's a very fractured picture. And so that, that is my answer to your question, Michael. And, and let me also just echo that it's an honor to be here uh, this evening with all of you. Thank you, Kristen. Secretary Padilla, um, from your perspective, uh, election officials like yourself are having to play a new role in an unexpected time all across the country. From your perspective, what is different, what is not different, and, and what has your perspective on this been? Yeah, well, um, uh, thank you, Michael, uh, and uh, the Commonwealth Club and the Brennan Center for, for uh, convening this important and timely conversation. I want to echo uh, what Ari and Kristen have already mentioned. But from the perspective of elections administrators, uh, you know, I remind the general public and the voters, every election is important. And every election, we work hard to maintain uh, an election system that is as accessible as possible for every eligible voter, at least in California, uh, try to be the, the positive example for the rest of the nation, as well as maintaining the security of our elections. I know there's a lot to unravel in terms of election security, not just the infrastructure side, but the uh, impact of election misinformation and disinformation. So every election is tough enough as it is. I think what uh, is unique this year is uh, the added layer of needing to provide for safe elections and safe opportunities for people to exercise the right to vote during the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, again, accessibility is uh, uh, top of mind. Want to make sure uh, there's as many safe opportunities for people to register to vote, update their registration, et cetera, uh, and a lot of great policies and tools to discuss, including the impact of automatic registration, which I know you're uh, very familiar with. You've been a great champion, Michael. Uh, multiple opportunities to vote. You know, California and several other states are no strangers to vote by mail. And I'm glad to see that vote by mail has been expanded so much. You know, sad that it's been because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but at least in the states that have uh, expanded vote by mail as a priority and who's eligible to vote by mail, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but the combination of expanding vote by mail, what that means from a staffing standpoint, a training standpoint, uh, from a you know, sorter and machinery standpoint, while also maintaining safe in-person opportunities to vote, right? Different types of venues, no longer in residential garages or retirement homes for obvious reasons, the need for larger facilities physical distancing, PPE, et cetera, it's changed our logistics. It's changed uh, our planning, and it's certainly changed our budgets. Uh, and uh, sadly, uh, Congress hasn't exactly stepped up to the plate uh, to provide the additional funding that state and local elections officials need to maintain our free and fair elections in that uh, accessible, secure, uh, and safe way that we need. So kudos to my colleagues from across the country uh, who are trying to do the right thing on uh, uh, very uh, stretched uh, resources. And it is interesting how the further away from Washington and the sort of cable news set you get, the more uh, Republican and Democratic officials have have 
looked at this and from our experience, mostly, not all, but mostly said, what are we going to do to get it right? Um, are there, Secretary Padilla, are there lessons from a state that is used to voting by mail for the rest of the country, many, many places uh, making it available for the first time in a widespread way to a lot of voters? Uh, I'd like to think there is a lot to learn from the California experience. I know I'm on a daily basis, I'm on the phone with uh, one of my colleagues from uh, throughout the country, both sides of the aisle, I should I should add. Uh, there's, you know, the nuts and bolts of what we've learned, you know, printing of ballots, you know, coordinating the mail house, making sure they go out on a timely basis, right? The, the training, the infrastructure necessary to, to process vote by mail ballots, the security measures that are in place with vote by mail from, you know, the paper types that are selected uh, to help protect against fraudulent or counterfeit ballots, the signature verification process, all those things. I think what's really come to light uh, in an important way, and it's going to be an ongoing conversation for future elections, is that uh, the details matter, right? Each state, because uh, each state does elections a little bit differently, it's one thing to broadly say, okay, well, let's do more vote by mail. That sounds easy and simple. But when you get into the weeds of, okay, so what's the deadline for ballots to go out? Are they going out with ample time to get to voters uh, when there's threats against the U.S. Postal Service, for example, that could delay the delivery of ballots? What's the deadline for voters to return their ballots? Does it have to be in hand? at the county elections office uh, by the time the polls close on election night? Or do you have what we have in California and other states, a postmark policy? As long as they're postmarked on or before election day, they can arrive a certain number of days after the election and still be counted. You know, we're seeing the value of our ballot tracking technology, for example, not expensive, but hugely powerful for voters to be able to track their ballot through the postal service, like we track our packages when we shop online, uh, but also creating a, an incredible dashboard and source of information for us to be able to identify any bottlenecks or delays in the postal uh, service to address them in real time so that people don't lose their right to vote or their right for their vote to be counted through no fault of their own uh, if there are delays in the postal service. You know, the uh, signature verification uh, policies, on and on. So, yeah, a lot of details involved. I think uh, some states are learning quick, but uh, we hope to have these ongoing conversations and uh, build on the improvements from 2020 in the years ahead. Now, of course, even if there were no pandemic, this would be a year where uh, there would be a pretty fierce battle over who can vote and how people vote. Um, a, a, a battle, among other things, that's plainly driven by the demographic changes in the country, by the growing diversity of the electorate, and by the uh, fierce desire of some to cling to power uh, by changing the rules to make it harder to have the vote mean something. Um, Ari, how, why don't we start with you? But this is really a question for all of you. How do the ongoing struggles over voter suppression uh, play into this crisis? Uh, and and w even, again, if there were no pandemic, we would be having some of these same conversations. Isn't that right? That That's absolutely right, Michael. We would be having some of this these conversations, but probably it would be more like we were having these conversations as opposed to millions of Americans now having these conversations because there's so much more attention on voting now um, than there was in the past. I mean, but you're absolutely right. If you step back, uh, voter suppression is not a new thing. Of course, it's not a new thing throughout U.S. history, but it's also not a new thing um, in recent years. As the Brennan Center has documented better than anybody. Uh, since the 2010 election, half the states in the country have changed their voting laws to make it harder to vote, including pretty much every major swing state. And so there were already efforts underway in Ohio and Pennsylvania, in Florida and North Carolina and Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera, to make it more difficult to vote. Then, as Kristen mentioned in her opening, the Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act in 2013, which made it easier to put in place new obstacles to voting in Texas and in Georgia and Arizona and other states with a history of discrimination. So all of that was ongoing before the pandemic. I think what's happened in the pandemic is voter suppression has intensified, both because the Trump campaign and the Republican Party have doubled down on it, but the simple act of voting is so much harder in a pandemic that the status quo in and of itself in a pandemic can be very suppressive. And so there was a hope at the beginning of the pandemic that states would take a whole wide range of action 
to make voting easier. And in fact, some states like California have done that. Um, But what we didn't expect, or maybe we should have expected, but happened anyway, is that one side would basically reject all of those efforts to make it harder to vote and would challenge all those efforts before the court while doubling down on their existing voter suppression. So you have both the existing voter suppression, then you have the weaponization of COVID to preserve a status quo that makes voting a lot harder. So trying to undermine mail ballots in every single way possible, from what Texas is doing, as Kristen mentioned, where you basically can't vote by mail if you're under 65, to fighting over things that are as basic as drop boxes, which you'd think like at the very least, if people are worried about the post office, agreeing that there should be lots of drop boxes would be something that everyone could agree to. But even that level of detail um, is being litigated. And so now it's become very partisan. It's become very confusing. And Really, the problem is the status quo plus all of the suppressive efforts are leading to a very challenging landscape for voters that voters seem motivated to overcome. But as we talked about earlier, you shouldn't have to wait 11 hours to vote or you shouldn't have to have to travel an hour and a half to drop your ballot off. I mean, these are things that in this day and age, you'd like to think we'd overcome that. Um, Unfortunately, we haven't. And we haven't overcome that because there's people that deliberately want to put in policies to make it harder to vote. It's not like it's some coincidence that these policies exist. There's a deliberate intent to try to make voting difficult, and especially even in a pandemic. Kristen, uh, what's your experience been on this very point that uh, so much of this seems as though when the pandemic hit, some people said, hey, this is a great opportunity. They didn't look at the long lines in Georgia during the primary and see a problem. They saw uh, a light bulb going off um, as, as a way to, uh, to uh, suppress the vote in new ways. How do you see this playing out? Well, first, let me come back to the initial point that you were raising about how our nation is becoming increasingly racially diverse because I do think that that is a fact that is fueling a lot of the voter suppression that we're seeing and experiencing in the modern era. We're seeing efforts in which predominantly white men are bent on preserving the status quo in freezing in place their power in reducing the level of competitiveness. And we're gonna see how all of this kind of plays out in the next round of redistricting, which is the, the next challenge that awaits us on the other side of the 2020 election season. Um, you know, one of the things that has been very painful for me as a civil rights lawyer is seeing some of the communities that have been hardest hit by uh, the pandemic and either the failure or inability of officials to respond. Um, You know, these long lines have just been grueling in places like Milwaukee and Atlanta and Chicago and Philadelphia. And the common denominator here is we're talking about largely communities of color, communities comprised largely of black and brown people Now, what explains what we're seeing right now? We're continuing to see these long lines as we move into the early election season. And again, these long lines are in many places, but seem to be particularly egregious in communities of color. Now, some of it is, I think, historic uh, interest in this election season, which many would deem to be one of the most consequential elections of our lifetime. But the reality is that there are states that could have done better by voters. Um, The U.S. Election Assistance Commission, for example, has issued guidance. It's probably collecting dust right now about the number of voting sites that you should have uh, per, uh, you know, certain numbers of people. I doubt that that guidance has been underscored, reinforced, or is being followed in many places. Two, Senator Mitch McConnell allowed a bill to sit on his desk and collect dust, a bill that would have allocated $3.6 billion in funding for election officials who now are trying to do this in many places on a shoestring. They're trying to figure out how they provide PPE, how they recruit new numbers of poll workers, how they buy new scanning equipment to deal with the historic, uh, you know, Uh, volume of vote-by-mail ballots. They're trying to buy secrecy envelopes for absentee ballots. They're contending with these monumental challenges without that additional set of resources. And many thanks to the Brennan Center for doing the hard work 
to help us empirically determine the, the extra support that jurisdictions would really need to do this right in a pandemic. Um, third, we have a president who has uh, promoted uh, or undermined trust in vote by mail this season by promoting falsities about the safety and security of vote by mail, while he himself uh, has availed himself of the oppor opportunity to, to vote by mail. And so, you know, one of the things uh, that we do at the Lawyers Committee is we run a nonpartisan election protection hotline. It's anchored by the 866-hour-vote number. And we're hearing from a lot of voters who are saying, is this really a, a safe method to vote? Or do I need to go out and stand on those long lines? And that has fed into the long lines. These are people whose confidence levels were hit by the fraudulent and false statements that have been Put forth by the president, and that have allowed to been, and that have allowed to, um, and that have gone viral essentially online, right? Which kind of gets into the role of social media and their responsibility to check the the misinformation uh, that plays out. And the U.S. Postal Service under uh, the new Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, the dramatic policy changes that he made were having an impact on delivery times. And you know that there has been litigation that my group and others have brought to push back on DeJoy's changes, but that was another hit to public confidence. And you know, all of that explains in part why we're seeing these long lines. Um, so I just wanted to underscore that reality and then just, again, connect this back to the, the extra burden that communities of color, that voters of color are facing this election season. And we th thank you. And we will get back to Mitch McConnell in a little bit because I want to talk about what we as a country can do to use this new focus on these issues of voting and democracy to actually make some progress. Secretary Padilla, in a sense, on this, as on so many other things, California has been ahead of the rest of the country. Uh, California's demographic makeup changed and uh, no longer has a white majority uh, and has a very diverse, pluralistic electorate. Um, and this year, in particular, around the country, the Latino vote is playing an especially increased role. What uh, what lessons do you think we can draw or what do you see as the direction of the way our changing country plays out in these these elections fights? Yeah, I've been uh, sort of revisiting what the California storyline has been for the last 25 years uh, a lot lately. You know, frankly, it's one of the reasons I left a, a mechanical engineering degree uh, and career behind and uh, committed myself to public service and to government and politics because of uh, the anti-Latino, anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric that was the, the political climate in California, frankly, as recently as the, uh, the mid to late 1990s. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, you had a, a whole generation of people like myself, proud son of immigrants that realized unless we got engaged in the political process, our community would continue to be a target. Uh, and you had a whole generation of people like my parents who had been here nearly 30 years with absolutely no urgency to become citizens of the United States. Uh, after initiatives like Proposition 187 uh, in 1994 in California and uh, the ban on affirmative action in 1996 and others, uh, that changed. Uh, people chose to engage in immigrant communities and Latino communities. Level, numbers of naturalization skyrocketed uh, in the years after. And a whole generation uh, that was mine who might have been uh, uh, cynical up until that point, like young people are historically uh, from a participation rate, uh, choosing to engage. And that's why you see the California that you see today. The, it's not just that the population has grown and diversified. The electorate itself is much more inclusive. Uh, and so the, the political priorities of the state of California, you know, are now such that uh, we're known as the land of the resistance. Uh, it's because of uh, the response and the decision to engage, not just bear our head in the sand and try to wait it out. I share all that because as tough as uh, things may be in Arizona 
or parts of Texas uh, or North and South Carolina and elsewhere throughout the country that have emerging significant Latino populations, you can look at places like Nevada and Colorado and California and others and see that through engagement, through increased participation, we can change the political climate. We can change uh, the priorities of the state house and counties and cities uh, throughout the country. So I think that's what lies ahead. Uh, it's a tough period right now, especially given uh, this administration, uh, and not just the rhetoric. I mean, you see the uh, uh, separation of families at the border, uh, the constant threat of uh, uh, deportation and arrests, uh, and then just a flat out uh, hate speech uh, that is instigated. Uh, I think we're going to overcome it through engagement this election uh, and in the years ahead. And, and do you think that that, is, that almost negative stimulus uh, is is helping to kindle political engagement in a way that we haven't seen in, in the community in those states, the way Prop 187 did in California? Right. Uh, you know, I, I was going to say, no, no doubt, that's what I see happening. Uh, one of the messages that Latino leaders are sharing nationally is, uh, look, there are no guarantees. Just because this is what happened in California, it was a difficult chapter, but turned out to be a good story at the end of the day, uh, doesn't mean it's automatically going to happen. I think the, the environment presents an opportunity. And how do we respond to that? Do we respond to it through engagement, through organizing, and through building political infrastructure through uh, both parties? Partisan and nonpartisan organizations to, you know, continue to promote voter registration and participation, but more fundamentally advance these policies that we know work. This formula that we're applying uh, for the November 2020 election is not new in California. We've been advancing online registration, automatic registration, vote by mail, etc., simply because it's the right thing to do. We can keep the security of our elections and increase access. They just happen to make a lot more sense during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's no excuse for every state in the nation to not do the same. Nobody can claim to be you know, uh, larger than California from a population standpoint, more diverse than California. Uh, it's not going to cost you more to implement than what we have done. We have demonstrated that it works. Now, we've gotten more than a half hour into this conversation, and we haven't really talked about President Trump very much and his role, because that's also something pretty much unprecedented. And we also need an opportunity to kind of get get some of our uh, energies out. Um, you know, we've had elections held in crisis before. We, we, we had uh, millions of people away from home during World War II. We had the election during the Spanish flu of 1918, which was called the first masked election by the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, because they were social distancing even then, you know, without, without Zoom. But that they were, what they were doing was not that different from we, what we are having to do. And in 1864, in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was so determined to have that election, even though he thought he was going to lose, uh, and that when he won, his victory speech at the White House was about how important it was that we held an election to show that democracy could survive. So we've we've had to run elections under extraordinary circumstances before, but we've never tried to do that when the leader of one of the political parties, let alone the president of the United States with the bully pulpit and the megaphone that he has, uh, pretty explicitly used this crisis to try to drive down turnout, to collapse participation, and to denounce the whole thing as rigged uh, and as fraudulent and as, as he put it, the most corrupt election in history. Um, what role does this have in how voters react? And what are we worried about as election day approaches uh, with that, that kind of um, explicit, uh, explicit undermining of confidence in the election? Um, Ari, why don't we start with you? Well, those are really good points, Michael. I think you summarized it uh, well. I mean, the president has attacked the integrity of the election at every step of the process. Um, I think all the way back uh, in the spring, he was saying that if you expanded the right to vote, you would never have a Republican elected in this country again, um, which I think would come as a surprise, for example, to Republicans in Utah that have been holding all male elections for quite some time and getting elected uh, with no problems. So he said that. 
He openly admitted he was trying to sabotage the post office so people couldn't expand mail voting. I don't think we've ever had a president before who said he wouldn't accept the results of the election before anyone had even um, voted. Uh, So, so many things are unprecedented here. And what he's done is he has both undermined people's faith uh, in the election. He has created so many nightmare scenarios for those of us that cover this work or do this kind of work. He has pushed his supporters away from a method of voting that they were champion. It was Republicans in Florida and in Arizona who were pushing vote by mail. I mean, I was researching the 2000 election in Florida recently. Florida Republicans sent absentee ballot requests to all of their voters with Jeb Bush's face on them saying, vote by mail. You can now vote from the convenience of your home. And they wanted elderly voters. They wanted rural voters. They wanted white voters to vote by mail. And so he's driven this huge partisan divide um, when it comes to voting. And a lot of people don't trust the process now. And a lot of people believe um, that it's rigged. Uh, And no matter what happens, 40%, 35%, I don't know the numbers will be, won't trust the outcome. That said, I do think, and I'm really curious what um, the secretary and Kristen think about this, I do think that his rhetoric has also made people more motivated to vote and made them more proactive about how they're going to vote and made it so that they're not going to allow the election to be stolen from them. They're not going to allow Donald Trump to prematurely declare victory. They're not going to allow him to sabotage the post office. They're not going to allow him to take away their option to vote safely by mail or safely in person. So I actually think what the president is doing right now is backfiring on him. I think it's backfiring with his own supporters by forcing them to vote by methods they're not potentially comfortable with. But I also think it's motivating people on the other side to vote as early as possible and to vote in record numbers based on the early voting turnout we're seeing. So I don't think this is going to play out necessarily how the president thinks it will. But of course, ironically, if it is the case that some Democrats who thought they were going to vote by mail but got nervous about the post office or other things are now voting in person, well, those votes are all going to be counted on by election day, just like any other in-person cast vote. Uh, Kristen uh, and Secretary Padilla, what what do you think the impact of this is? Is there a is there a backlash to the backlash? Um, yes. So I started off my career at the Justice Department as a voting rights lawyer, and one of the cardinal rules, one of the cardinal rules, and longstanding rules of the Justice Department is that you do not undertake action close to an election that would give the appearance of impropriety, that would give the appearance of seeking to benefit a particular candidate or benefit a particular party. And I am deeply disturbed by the actions that we've seen from Attorney General Barr, um, who has not only changed those rules, but has actually taken action that gives the appearance that he is literally acting as President Trump's campaign lawyer. Uh, There was a Uh, some allegations that arose out of Pennsylvania about uh, some ballots that were discarded by a um, temporary employee or a recently hired employee. And they published this press release and made a big to-do about it. Uh, They ended up having to modify uh, the release because some of the facts were uh, inaccurately stated. But that aside, I mean, this is an attorney general who, who literally is giving the public the impression that he is, um, uh, uh, you know, acting on behalf, on behalf of the Trump campaign. And I think that that is deeply disturbing and troubling and must be horrifying for the dedicated career employees that have long been doing this work across administrations and have never seen politicization um, of this nature. Um, the 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 other thing that that troubles me is just the 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 continued absence of the justice department's voice when it comes to protecting voting rights and and fighting voter suppression we've seen little to no activity from the justice department so for them to rear their head in this way speaks volumes about um you know what they think about voting rights of people of color which is they could care less um, but they will do anything that, um, you know, helps to tilt, tilt the scales on behalf of candidate Trump. And that that is very troubling. The, the last point that I'll make, Michael, is just a, a quick point about this Supreme Court nomination that is underway. And, uh, you know, 
the, the filling of Justice Ginsburg's seat as millions of Americans are casting their ballots is disturbing and I think really politicizes this nomination in ways that we've never seen in our nation's history. Um, there have not been vacancies put forth past the month of July in a presidential election year. And the few instances in which seats have been filled, they were filled after an election, after uh, the, the, the sitting president was actually re-elected. So in many respects, the race to fill this seat right now sends a message to the millions of people who have cast their ballots that their vote doesn't matter. And that that is troubling. And the final point is just Amy Coney Barrett's record uh, when it comes to voting rights. Judge Barrett last week, I think, could not have made it more clear that she will be a vote to undermine voting rights uh, in our country. There were some simple questions presented to her by the senators. Do you think voting discrimination is ongoing? Is voter intimidation illegal? And um, she refused at every turn to answer these questions, these really plain uh, propositions. And we know that President Trump's goal is to have that seat filled uh, by the time this election uh, wraps up so that she is there presumably to resolve any disputes, if any, um, arise and, and make their way up to the, the Supreme Court. So the, the politicization of this administration's work the politicization of this Supreme Court nomination are all troubling and dark clouds that are kind of hovering over the 2020 election season. Well, the, the uh, Secretary Padilla, do you do you have a thought on this? Because I also want to turn to one of the questions from the audience, which points us toward next year. But what, what, how do you react to this? Uh, I do. I do. And I'll try to be brief. I mean, the politicization of the administration is one thing. The credibility of the administration uh, is another factor. I mean, I think since day one, uh, Trump has had a bad relationship with the truth. Uh, everything from the crowd size of his inauguration uh, to, you know, climate change, or you pick a number of tremendous issues that the American public gets it by now. I mean, by and large, he still has his uh, base, base followers, but by and large, uh, people uh, just frankly don't believe him anymore. And I think that has mitigated somewhat the impact of his threats against the election. It doesn't mean he's not going to keep trying. And he's not uh, alone in this. He's got accomplices in McConnell and uh, throughout GOP leadership. And they've been very tactical, right? Uh, so we know that, uh, you know, vote by mail is not just good for democracy. It's crucial under a pandemic. So they attack vote by mail and confidence in vote by mail. You know, one of the options, you know, when, when you're voting by mail, to mail it back. So the Postal Service comes under attack. You know, there's uh, alternatives to the Postal Service. There's these things called ballot drop boxes. Drop boxes are now under attack, even in the state of California. And so what are people left with? We'll show up in person. When we've been hearing since March from Dr. Fauci, there's going to be an uptick in COVID cases. So they've been very tactical in terms of throwing up their roadblocks and uh, undermining confidence in elections. But I don't think that people are buying it. To Ari's point, you see some of the early voting numbers uh, in several states and the early return of vote by mail ballot uh, numbers including in California, I think people are responding through engagement. It's always one of the challenges that we all face who work on these issues as election day approaches. You know, if you talk about the problems, you talk about vote suppression, doesn't that kind of create its own discouragement of people to vote? It turns out, it seems this year at least, that uh, people are so conscious of the attack on their own ability to vote, their own right to vote, that they're voting. Uh, early just to make sure that it counts and, and they're 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 you know talking back uh by waiting online and voting they've turned it into a motivation and just one last quick thing because i think we got we got to think ahead a little bit here uh because so many other states have expanded vote by mail significantly particularly states like michigan ohio pennsylvania uh you know we're also planning for the possibility of a race that's too close to call on november 3rd uh, and if there's still a whole lot of ballots to be counted, be wary of any candidates claiming victory when there's still a ton of ballots to count. So if it takes a little bit longer to finalize the results this year, we have to be patient, not panic. It's the process at work. So the misinformation, disinformation is not going to end when the polls close on November 3rd. 
and persuading, among other things, the news media not to treat that highly predictable possibility as chaos or dramatic news, but as a sign that people are carefully counting the votes. Uh, it, but 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 encouraging the public or the, or the media to be patient is not it's not an easy not, not such an easy thing to imagine. Uh, one of the questions we have from the audience asks about what we do after this. Right now, we're all talking about this. We're all focused on this. Um, but how do we use this uh, to motivate democracy reform and national standards on these issues? To become a central political issue going forward, there is a possibility. If you know, the, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a likely outcome, but of all the scenarios, the likeliest in the polls right now is that Biden wins the presidency and the Democrats win the Senate. Um, how can those of us who care about these issues make sure that this stays front and center? Do we have to deal with the filibuster and the and the broken nature of the Senate? Do we do we uh, how do we make clear? Um, that this is uh, something that should come early and not just be on a long laundry list of, of uh, policies and issues. What do you all think? I think it's a great question. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot amid the pandemic, because I think it has exposed just how fraction our election rules are across the country and how dramatic the difference are, differences are state by state. And Congress does have the power to put in place rules for federal elections, and it'd be great to use this moment to see if we can get Congress to invoke that power, to put in place things like vote by mail for all in federal elections, to put in place things like same-day registration, um, to deal with problems like what we saw this week in Virginia, where their online state registration portal collapsed. And, uh, you know, we had to go and sue the state to get a 48-hour extension to put in place things like, uh, you know, how long of an early voting period is reasonable. You know, and a two-week early voting period, I think, is probably uh, what we ideally want to see. So, you know, it should not be the case that if you're a voter in Texas, that your experience voting is, is you know, completely opposite that of somebody in California, or that of somebody in New York or DC. Uh, so using this moment to figure out how we can um, preserve some of the gains that we made this year uh, through congressional legislation going forward would be, would be, I think, great. And important to remember that there are some states that acted based on executive order. There are some states that have put in place some new rules for the pandemic that are not permanent. Right. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see what states choose to do on the other side of this. Are they going to literally roll back those rules and, and make it harder for their constituents to vote? Or will they take action at the state level to make those positive reforms that open up access uh, permanent and enduring? But, you know, as we all know, and you all know, it's been very hard to get political leaders uh, to focus on this. Uh, they sometimes see it as arcane as technical or as something that changes the way they got into office in the first place. But back in ancient days, I worked in the White House for President Clinton on these issues and on campaign finance reform in particular. And it was progressive Democrats behind closed doors who didn't want to do this stuff, no matter what they said in public. Um, so I, Ari, you've written about the Democrats and Secretary Padilla. You, you've actually faced voters. Um, as a political matter, how do you see this potentially playing out? Look, I think there. I think there's three dynamics that uh, uh, do give me uh, hope and optimism for further progress in the years ahead. Number one, uh, whether they liked it or not, so many states implementing these changes, whether it's legislative, executive order, or otherwise, uh, that will by and large be shown to have worked. Uh, to have facilitated participation, probably higher rates of participation uh, with minimal uh, security issues, knock on wood, uh, or Michael to the Brennan Center's research, you know, without uh, uh, you know significant voter fraud across the country. So if we have an election cycle, uh, then that's going to bode well for wanting to build on that and uh, institutionalizing some of the changes that we've made 
because of COVID, number one. Number two, it's been debated sufficiently in the last couple of years alone, whether it's every appropriation, whether it's been the CARES Act, the HEROES Act negotiations, uh, et cetera. The topic is not uh, uh, new to Congress. Uh, in fact, the House of Representatives has taken significant action on this. So now uh, the, the focus does become uh, the United States Senate. Uh, and I think, look, the concerns about uh, election security and the potential for foreign interference in our elections is going to continue. Uh, and as we, uh, uh, whether slowly or surely, sooner or later, invest more in our elections infrastructure, that newer, more secure equipment uh, in many ways is what enables a lot of these new options and flexibility for voters. Things like vote centers, where voters can go to any voting location in their county convenient to them over the course of multiple days to vote and not be tethered to one polling place on one day only to be able to cast your ballot in person, you know, whether it's automatic registration, same day registration with all the security protocols to maintain the integrity of the election. The playbook is there, uh, and I do uh, uh, see a ripe opportunity for significant progress in the next couple of years. And, and as you say, the, the House of Representatives actually passed H.R. 1, which was the most sweeping democracy reform bill with, with all these things uh, in it uh, since the 1960s uh, last year, but awaits action in the Senate. Um, Ari, what do you think? You, I suspect you may be more skeptical about the willingness of Democrats to bite the bullet on this. No, I, I actually, uh, Michael, I'm pretty optimistic because that bill you mentioned, H.R. 1, the For the People Act, that uh, had pretty much every good democracy reform that you can imagine, it was the first bill passed by the House of Representatives, which I think is really, really significant that they basically said, we can't do anything else we want to do until we change the way democracy works. And I think in particular, in 2020, people are realizing a rigged democracy leads to a rigged politics. And so I think after the election, Democrats aren't going to treat this as obscure process issues. I think they're going to view this as issues that get to the fundamental nature of who we are as a democracy. And it's not just H.R. 1. It's the fact that Mitch McConnell has been blocking a vote on legislation to restore the Voting Rights Act, named after John Lewis now, since December, when we're seeing 11-hour lines in Georgia, when we're seeing efforts to basically criminalize vote by mail uh, in Texas. I mean, and, and so there's so much evidence emerging of the need for these things and so many um, dramatic illustrations during the pandemic of how we need to fix our voting system, just like so you need to fix all of these other um, broken institutions. And it's going to be really hard to do anything about all of these other issues if we don't solve the crisis of our democracy. And I, so I think it's not just going to be about voting laws. It's going to be, as you mentioned, the filibuster. You're not going to probably get 60 votes in the Senate to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Uh, so how do you get that done? And then I think it, honestly, what do you do about the courts? Because a six to three court with Amy Coney Barrett on it could be very skeptical of the For the People Act, could be very skeptical of a new Voting Rights Act, could be very skeptical of independent redistricting commissions and things like that. And so I think all of this stuff has to be viewed holistically, whether it's our voting laws, the rules of the Senate, the composition of the courts, it all needs to be part, in my view, of a bigger uh, democracy agenda. And obviously, the most important thing is going to be try to solve the pandemic, try to get the economy back on track. But I do think fixing our democracy is going to be very close in terms of priorities to those other things. And it doesn't cost nearly as much money as all these other things, which is actually a positive thing. Uh, when looking at these things. Um, there are other ideas that are out there, though, and I'm looking at one of the questions we have. Um, Texas Republicans recently floated the idea, the question reads, of changing the way statewide officials are elected from the popular vote to the, a statewide electoral college. Um, we've seen also in Missouri a uh, real movement to change how redistricting and apportionment is done from counting all people, which is how we've done it since the beginning of the country, uh, to only citizens or even voting eligible citizens. These are what count as innovative ideas, I guess, in the anti-democracy movement. How worried are you about these kinds of ideas taking hold? Uh, any one of you wants to answer that. Kristen, do you have a, is this high on your list of things to worry about? Well, I, you know, 
I, I chuckled about the idea of a state electoral college uh, because it comes at a moment where I think there is this national discussion about the <laughs> propriety of the the electoral college that we use at the uh, at the federal level. Uh, really remarkable. Um, so I, I look, I, I am hopeful that um, we can harness a lot of the energy that we're seeing around this election uh, to really champion and push for forth uh, important reforms that open up access on the other side of the 2020 election. I also am thinking deeply, though, about how other countries around the world uh, must be looking at the spectacle playing out. Uh, in our country right now, and all of the ways in which we're turning the clock back, we're suppressing votes, we're, you know, excluding on working feverishly to exclude undocumented people uh, from from our democracy. Um, we are no longer the model for other democracies to follow across the globe. That's for sure. And you know, hopefully, what might inspire the public and bring people together is figuring out how we can restore restore our standing on the national on a global stage, uh, because right now I think we are we are a system that is in in great disrepair. Well, of course, there's there's been an assault on democratic norms and a retreat from democratic institutions in a number of countries around the world whether in India or in Turkey or in Hungary or in Poland. Uh, and, and unfortunately, they are taking comfort from our system and our president and others who are articulating a lot of the same views um, and, and worries. Um, uh, one of the questions that we've just gotten uh, is, uh, as, as you may know, Russia seemed pretty interested in our election in 2016. Uh, and uh, all the intelligence community, including Donald Trump's intelligence community, has said, as uh, Dan Coates said when he was director of national intelligence, the lights are blinking red for Russian interference in our election again. And no doubt there are others, too, who, who may have that in mind. What do you think the question asks about the likelihood of hacking or compromised voting machines? And I guess I would broaden that out to say, not voting machines alone, uh, where they're so decentralized, it's it's actually harder than you think to do that. But counting systems, power grids, and the other things that are easier to attack to mess with our heads. Um, Secretary Padilla, you must uh, you must have a national security squad working with you uh, at a moment like this. We do. You know, when I ran for Secretary of State, uh, never would have imagined that. Uh, uh, colleagues at uh, the Department of Homeland Security would be on my speed dial, but that's the days that we're living in now. Uh, look at from a, a integrity of our infrastructure standpoint, I still think there's a, a lot of work to do and investment to be made, but uh, we're in much better shape than we were just four years ago, if nothing else, because of the awareness. Uh, but also, you know, you reference the decentralized nature of elections infrastructure in America. For better and for worse, uh, the Constitution delegates authority over elections to states. So not only are the state's rules a little bit different, voting systems are a little bit different state by state and frankly, county by county throughout the land. But the general framework that most states do follow is number one, voting systems that are allowed to be used have to be tested and certified uh, for use first, meaning they have to meet uh, either the EAC's uh, recommended security standards or in a, the case of California, our own self-imposed standards, which exceed the EAC. I think by and large, uh, voting systems end-to-end -end are not connected to the internet uh, and prohibited from, from such to make it impossible to systematically hack or rig an election where I wish we were at 100% uh, already, but we're not, we're getting closer, is the use of paper ballots, paper ballots in a voter verified paper audit trail. But in most uh, jurisdictions in most states, there are required post-election audits that uh, confirm the accuracy and integrity of the results. So from an election security standpoint, you know, I think we've made significant progress in the last four years and got to continue to do so. The biggest threat remains the danger and impact of election misinformation and disinformation to undermine confidence in the electoral process. It's both an intentional form of voter suppression and uh, what a way to destabilize a democracy. So uh, again, the general public is more aware 
but uh, we have more work cut out for us. And uh, social media companies, they, they've made some changes, but uh, you know, a lot more to do. Uh, Ari uh, and Kristen, are you uh, are you focused on the threats from Russia or anybody else, domestic or foreign, uh, to our election infrastructure this year? I mean, if you, Michael, if you read the biggest study from Harvard on election disinformation, Trump is spreading more misinformation than Russia, China, and every other foreign adversary combined. So I am less worried. And using the traditional media, not just his Twitter feed. And using Fox News uh, to spread uh, all his disinformation. So yes, of course, I'm worried about um, Russia and, and what they're doing because I mean their message is sinking uh, with Trump's message. Uh, but at the same time, we don't need Russia because the President of the United States is doing all of the things that, that they would be doing. I will say, however, uh, among the many bills that Mitch McConnell has been blocking is he has been blocking a bill to prevent foreign election interference, the SHIELD Act, for 361 days. So almost an entire year is going to pass uh, with us doing nothing to protect election uh, security. And so, I mean, there's just so many things we need to fix in our voting system. And hopefully uh, 2020 is the year that people get mad enough about it that we start to do all these things in 2021 that are long overdue. And, and of course, if, if, if we don't do something about the filibuster, he'll still have the ability to block it as long as he has 40 votes in his pocket. Um, last question. We have time for one more question, which I guess would be uh, take a step back and take a step up. Why does, apart from the instrumental matters here, why is voting so important? Uh, what, wh why, and why should people vote? It's, a, it's, a, it's an obvious question, but of course, even now, so many don't vote. I'll start with you, Kristen. Yeah, it's such an important question and one that I deal with a lot in the context of people who feel a bit disengaged uh, and discouraged uh, by all of the talk about uh, voter suppression and hacking. And <laughs> so I do think, though, the one thing we haven't gotten to about 2020 is the unique moment that we are in, where we are having a national reckoning around our country's long sorted history of racial violence, police violence, and white supremacy. And when you think about it, you know, the right to protest and the right to vote have been hallmarks of American democracy. These have been rights when wielded by the public have helped to drive transformational change and reform in our country. And in many respects, I think we're, we're one huge step of the way there with the, the, the persistent, courageous protests that we have seen in every corner of our country that are saying enough's enough, now's the time to answer and respond to the, this crisis. The, the, the next step, though, will be folks turning out and exercising that power and voice at the ballot box. And... Um, you know, I, it is a moment to remind ourselves about the power of the ballot, not just at the top, but all the way down. Those down ballot races, the, that those local levels of political power where th that have tremendous impact on our day-to-day -day lives. And for the people who care about police violence, right, this is a moment to think about your elected DA who makes the decisions about whether or not to prosecute officers who use force without basis. This is a moment to think about your elected sheriff who makes decisions about how to run your jails and uh, whether or not to impose solitary confinement broadly. Uh, it's a moment to think about your elected mayor who often is the one empowered to put in place a police chief. So I think that this is a, a, a year where hopefully we'll see the true convergence of both of those dual rights in ways that will put us on a path to a better democracy um, in 2021 and beyond. The right to protest and the right to vote. Thank you. And Ari Berman and Secretary Alex Padilla, you have each 30 seconds before we wrap up to add if, if you wish. Ari? 
Well, I, I just think about the great civil rights leader, John Lewis, who we lost in July. And when John Lewis was marching on that bridge on Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, only 300 of 15,000 African-Americans were registered to vote. You had to name all 67 county judges if you wanted to register to vote. There were poll taxes. There were literacy tests. There were grandfather clauses. Uh, there were all-white primaries, all of these things. And we can't go back uh, to those days. We can't go back to making voter suppression the new normal and saying it's okay if you didn't vote because you didn't have the right ID or your polling place was closed or you were purged from the voting rolls. And so we have to defend this right because it's under attack. And if your vote didn't matter, people wouldn't be trying so hard to suppress it. So all the things you've been talking about tonight are illustrations of why voting is so important. And if we turn out in record numbers, massive turnout can beat massive suppression. And that's what gives me hope in this election in this moment in time. Secretary Padilla, you have the last word. All right. Well, uh, look, uh, my favorite subject growing up was math. So we know that 10 is greater than 1, 100 is greater than 10, 1,000 is greater than 100. And I say that because while we uh, discuss and celebrate our right to vote, uh, hand in hand with that is our right to organize. When each one of us registers and votes, that's one voice. Uh, But we uh, uh, in our democratic uh, society can also organize and motivate others to do the same. So if we uh, move our family, uh, that voice is heard louder in the democratic process. If we organize in our community, you know, there's strength in numbers. So it's not just the right to vote, it's the right to organize. And over time, uh, we uh, uh, not just uh, get through election day, but move our country towards better progress. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you to all of you for your insight and your voice. Uh, And so thank you to journalist Ari Berman, to the Lawyers Committee's Kristen Clark, and to Secretary of State Alex Padilla for joining us. And I would like to thank the audience for being part of this, for the great questions. And if you would like to watch more programs and support the Commonwealth Club's efforts to make virtual programming available, Uh, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I am Michael Waldman of the Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you so much, and please stay safe, everyone, and don't forget to vote. Thank you, everybody.